0: I'd like to thank Aaron Kay for sponsoring this week's Torah content. June is less than a month away, which means that I'll soon be transitioning into summer writing mode with more Substack articles and fewer recorded shirin. The bulk of these articles will remain free. However, if you would like to support my Torah and access additional spicy written content, consider becoming a paid subscriber by going to rabbishneweiss.substack.com. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt and... This is the audio version of a two-page article that I wrote and published on my Substack, .substack rabbishnewis.substack.com on March 7th, 2023, uh, on Purim Day. And uh, this has been somewhat of a tradition of mine, maybe, where I start writing an article on Tynas Esther, and I hurriedly finish it on Purim itself just a few hours before this Uda, so uh, that's why it's two pages instead of one. I didn't have time to try to write a short article. And uh, might not be as edited as I hope. Okay, but enough excuses. Here is the article. The article is entitled, Megillus Esther, How Esther Stayed Religious. It is stated in Esther 2.11, quote, Every day Mordechai would walk back and forth before the courtyard of the women's house to know Esther's well-being and what was to be done to her, end quote. According to the Pshat, Mordechai was checking on her general welfare and keeping tabs on her fate. Chazal, however, teach that Mordechai was, quote, Inquiring about her blood stains and her nida, her menstrual status. That's from Esther Rabbah 2.11. Similarly, when the Megillah tells us that, quote, Esther followed Mordechai's directive as she had when she was raised with him, end quote, that's in 2.20, Chazal explain in Megillah 13b, quote, she would show her menstrual blood to the sages for halachic rulings, end quote. The question is, why posit that Mordechai and Esther were preoccupied with the laws of nida? What are Chazal trying to teach us? Okay, now, this is a footnote. In the footnote, uh, the eighth Yosef on Esther Rabbah 2.11 explains the textual basis for Chazal's interpretation. Quote, this is inferred from the statement that he would walk back and forth before the courtyard of the women's house, for it would have been sufficient to say, and each and every day Mordechai would inquire about Esther's welfare. Since it said the the women's house, it seems he was speaking about the way of women, i.e. menstruation, and that the statement before the courtyard of the women's house is a euphemism for matters of nida and bloodstains. End quote from the H.C. Safe. Maharzu, uh, in his commentary on that midrash, notes that Chazal described female anatomy in architectural terms, which is why it's not far-fetched to assume that before the courtyard of the, of the women's house would be read euphemistically by those familiar with rabbinic jargon. Okay, back to the main article. So we left off with the question, why posit that Mordechai and Esther were preoccupied with the laws of Nida? What are Chazal trying to teach us? The Gemara continues with an even more unbelievable statement, one which is predicated on Chazal's assumption that Mordechai and Esther were husband and wife, as it stated in Megillah 13a rather than adoptive father and daughter the gemara states in 13b quote esther would get up from the lap of ahashverosh ie from having sexual relations with him immerse herself in a mikveh and sit in the lap of mordechai ie return to having sexual relations with him end quote this is problematic on at least 3 levels first and foremost there is no halakhic need and seemingly no halakhic purpose to keeping the laws of nida in a forbidden sexual relationship with a non jew A second problem, raised by Rav Chalio in the 13th century, has to do with logistics. Mordechai didn't have direct access to Esther while she was married to Achashverosh, as evidenced by the fact that the two of them were forced to communicate by messenger during the Haman crisis. See Esther chapter 4, verses 5, 7, 9, 10, 12, and 13. If so, how is it even possible for them to continue sleeping together? Rav Chalio identifies a third problem. Why would Mordechai and Esther risk the lives their lives, and the lives of the entire Jewish people for the sake of these trysts. Surely the king had eyes and ears everywhere in Shushan. Considering his earlier response to Vashi's betrayal and his subsequent rage at Haman's perceived attempt to rape the queen, we can guess how Achashverosh would react if he learned that his wife was having an affair with Mordechai, the Jew. How, then, can we make sense of this Midrash? Okay, I think that should be his wife, if his wife were having an affair. Okay, fine. Rav Chalayo offers an explanation which resolves these problems and showcases Esther's stellar character. Quote, it is possible to, for me to explain the words of the Midrash as follows. Because Esther was living among the uncircumcised Gentiles and eating the non-kosher royal food, she was unable to keep Torah and mitzvos properly. This is the meaning of the immersion mentioned in the Midrash, that she immersed in a mikveh and returned to the lap of Mordechai. Namely, this was Esther's best tevilah, her best immersion, to fulfill the Torah and mitzvahs to the extent that was possible for her. The proof is... The statement, and Esther obeyed the directive of Mordecai, which they say means she would show her menstrual blood to the sages. How good and how pleasant is this explanation? End quote from Rav On a simple level, the Midrash conveys the idea that Esther kept Torah and mitzvahs as best as she could under the circumstances. Chazal's statement that she immersed in a mikveh and went back to Mordechai after sleeping with Ahasuerus isn't meant to be taken literally. Rather, it means that she didn't abandon the halachos of Nida despite being married to a non-Jew. Instead, she maintained allegiance to the teachings of Mordechai and the sages. The Manos Levi on... Esther 2.11 and the Torah Tamima, uh in his footnote 27 on that verse explain what this means in practical terms. Although she wasn't able to avoid relations with Achashverosh, she strove to only sleep with him while in a state of purity, which is why she continued to pose halakha questions to the sages about her bloodstains. Esther's decision exemplifies the Torah value of Kedusha, loosely translated as sanctity, holiness, or separateness. Kedusha means transcendence of physicality. For non-physical existences, such as God, angels, and souls, to be kadosh is to be non-physical. For physical creatures, such as ourselves, being kadosh means resisting the temptation to let our physicality overpower our tzelem our non-physical, truth-seeking intellect. Instead, we must rise over above our animalistic nature and strive for the opposite kind of life, a life of mind over matter. Chazal teaches the principle of kaddish atzmecha b'muterlach, or sanctify yourself within what is permitted to you, in Yavamos 20a. This means that it is not enough to merely restrict ourselves within the parameters of halacha, but let loose and indulge whenever we have the right to do so. Rather, we should strive to uphold the value of kedusha beyond what halacha demands and aspire to fulfill the objectives inherent in the spirit of the law, even when we are not restrained by the letter of the law. Based on this concept, I coined the phrase sanctify yourselves within what is prohibited to you, which I explained in my article on this topic as follows. Quote from myself, from my other article. This means that even when a person violates halacha, he or she should still practice kedushah to the extent possible. In other words, just because the transgressor knows they are going to violate halacha doesn't mean that they should just say to hell with it and go on to act in a totally unrestrained manner. Instead... They should still exercise restraint and self control within that violation of halacha, and if feasible, should try to act in accordance with the objectives of the Torah, even though their actions are not in line with the halacha itself. End quote from me. We have examples in Tanakh of tzaddikim working out ingenious ways to keep halacha when the odds are against them, such as Daniel, who devised a strategy to avoid eating non-kosher food in the royal palace by surviving off legumes. We have examples of tzaddikim risking their lives rather than violate the core principles of Torah, such as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who consigned themselves to the flames rather than submit to the idolatrous ideology of Nebuchadnezzar. We even have examples of tzaddikim who were tempted to violate halacha but overcame their struggles, such as Yosef, who had to force himself away from the wife of Potiphar. Esther is in the category of her own. Here we have a tzaddikis who was forced to marry a hedonistic, profligate, non-Jewish king who was the antithesis of Kedusha. She was essentially cut off from her people and her heritage, a people who themselves were in the darkness of exile and had lost their way. She was made queen of the world and granted access to up to half the kingdom. It would have been all too easy for her to succumb to the allure of her position and eagerly cast off her Jewish heritage. It would have been equally easy for her to become discouraged by the compromises she was forced to make and to abandon Judaism as being impossible to uphold. Instead, she persevered in her observance of Torah and mitzvot, committing herself to the values and ideals of Judaism, even if she wasn't able to keep all its laws." Despite the strange, surface-level meaning of these midrashim, we see that they were written to convey an underappreciated aspect of Esther's righteousness, that she didn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good in her service of Hashem, even while she was in her personal exile within a national exile, and neither should we.